promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our uh, trip through Jeremiah brings us today to Jeremiah chapter 46. Jeremiah 46. There's only 52 chapters, so we're within six weeks now of conclusion. And uh, it'll be close. It'll be a nail-biter. Um, as far as counting down the Sundays, I want to wrap up this study before I go to Ukraine for three weeks. Uh, and so uh, I believe it's now targeted, to, which means I can't get six, uh, sick in the next six weeks because uh, we should wrap this up on the morning of April 23rd, and then I'm going to leave here and go get on a plane at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and uh, fly to Kiev. So anyway, keep that in your prayers as well. For today, we've got 28 verses to cover, and it is a communion Sunday, so that always cuts our time short. But uh, that which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And we have a section heading here in verse 1 that stands at the head of chapters 46 through 51. And so we've got a number of chapters coming up. They're going to deal with a number of Gentile nations surrounding Judah, surrounding Jerusalem at the time of the Babylonian conquest. And so each of these chapters, uh, there'll be some similarities in a lot of them, uh, but very unique aspects in some of them. And unfortunately, I think this stretch of the book gets ignored uh, because uh, by the time you wrap up chapter 44, really, we're kind of done with Jeremiah the person and his story. The rest of this, including last week, Baruch's chapter and uh, these other chapters are just kind of flashback and incidental uh, things that are added to the, to the book as it was placed in the canon of Scripture. And so I think this stretch, this section gets ignored a lot, and that's too bad because there are some significant prophecies in here and some great study in here that really ties together the entire Old Testament. And uh, hopefully some of that will come out today and in the coming weeks. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's humble ourselves under his authority and be prepared to receive eternal truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your faithfulness. We are standing before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Father, in your grace, your word will be rightly divided this morning, that uh, we are here to study to show ourselves approved. And Father, we're calling upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, take these warnings and these passages that were written thousands of years ago, and make them alive today for our obedience, for our application. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, chapters 46 through 51 center on the Gentile nations around Judah. And uh, I believe they, they were added most likely after Jeremiah's death that Baruch the scribe compiled many of these, put them in the order they're in, and attached them to the end of Jeremiah's composition. Um, but we have uh, an emphasis that we made way back in chapter 1 that he was called as a prophet to the nations. A prophet to the nations. And not many of the Old Testament prophets had Gentile ministry. We know that, that Jonah went to Nineveh eventually. He made it to Nineveh and he preached to Nineveh. We know that uh, Nahum had an oracle to Nineveh. But as far as tours are concerned and prophets getting up and going to those places, we have very little information in our Old Testament. But uh, back in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 10, he's called a prophet to the nations. And he had at least one world tour in that capacity. Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 26. And I believe that he literally went to all those places. Uh, and he made them drink. He made those kings drink from the cup of wine that he had prepared. And however else that happened, and and uh, some folks don't think it really happened, think that maybe he just did it in a vision or he did it in a dream. But uh, these were imperatives that were given to Jeremiah, I believe, when, when and I taught it this way, going through Jeremiah 25, he literally went to those kings to make them drink from that cup. The messages recorded in these closing chapters came at various times during Jeremiah's ministry, but they were compiled at a later time, possibly by Baruch after Jeremiah's death, 
or Jeremiah uh, compiled them himself during the Egyptian uh, retirement, if you will, at the end of his life when he and Baruch were living in Egypt uh, against their will. Um, Either way, the Holy Spirit superintended the way that these chapters ended up in the canon of Scripture. So nine nations total are addressed. Today we're centering on Egypt. Egypt is the content of chapter 46, uh, verses 1 through 28 or verses 2 through 28. Uh, We can break it down into two halves, which we'll do here this morning. It's also important to realize that we're dealing with overall themes that relate not only to the 6th century, not only to the Babylonian context, but eschatologically as well. Much of what Jeremiah addresses is thrown forward to the tribulation, is thrown forward to the millennium, and has an eschatological fulfillment as well. And, and it's uh, part of rightly dividing the word of truth is understanding what portions of these passages, which verses of these chapters are 6th century fulfillment, or are they future eschatological fulfillment? Are they waiting for Antichrist and the tribulation and and Jesus Christ to return for their ultimate fulfillment? And many of these chapters overlap. They include both near and far-term prophecies, near and far-term fulfillment. Fortunately, though, Jeremiah is not by himself. And uh, there are significant oracles in Isaiah and Ezekiel that also address uh, Egypt in their immediate context and in their ultimate destiny. And so Isaiah 19, verses 1 through 25, we're not going to spend time there this morning, but if this was a verse-by-verse format, you bet we'd be spending a lot of time to correlate Isaiah uh, 19 and Isaiah 20 with Jeremiah 46. Likewise, also the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a contemporary. He, uh, He was in Babylon giving the message there while Jeremiah was in Jerusalem and then Egypt giving the message there. So basically chapters 29, 30, 31, and 32 is a monster stretch within uh, the book of Ezekiel that centers on Egypt. And uh, really, that because that passage is so expansive, that's the one that I would prefer to use as the primary text and then bring in Isaiah and Jeremiah to supplement the doctrine that we glean out of the much larger uh, text. Next week, we'll come back and uh, have some fun with the Philistines. All right. Chapter 47, uh, it's a short chapter, seven verses, just like last week was the short chapter with only five verses, and we handled that in, a, in an hour. So uh, we'll do well next week with a seven-verse chapter. And likewise, Jeremiah is not the only prophet that addresses the Philistines. We have Amos, Zephaniah, and Zechariah as well. And uh, if you're furiously writing all these down, I think much of this I ripped off from the Through the Bible Notebook and so you will have these as well in your uh, in your bulletins. Chapters 46 through 50 centers on the Gentile nations around Judah. And it's fairly close to what we did in 2002 in the, uh, in the Through the Bible Notebook. All right. Uh, so you already have copies of this. The one thing you don't have, though, is this uh, little snippet there from Isaiah 20 got added. For this morning, it was not in the notes from 2002. All right, so we'll talk about the Philistines, all right? And we know the Philistines very well from Old Testament studies, and uh, we'll spend some time with them, uh, Goliath and his buddies, uh, next week. Moab, uh, chapter 48, and uh, 47 verses on Moab. For all the ones that then follow, Moab sets the table for all the rest. And it's the reason why it's the longest, um, until you get to Babylon. But Moab in chapter 48 will deal with, uh, along with Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zephaniah. A lot of these uh, Old Testament prophets dealt with Moab, as well as Moab's brother, Ammon. Moab and Ammon, the, the brothers, were literal people, sons of Lot, and then uh, their nations descended from them. And uh, the Moabites and the Ammonites are addressed throughout the scriptures. And uh, interestingly enough, they have a destiny. They have a future destiny. Their land is rescued from the hand of Antichrist in the tribulation. And uh, they become a place of refuge along with Edom. And so some of these studies are are interesting for us to consider as we look forward to uh, future events. Edom, also in chapter 49, verses 7 through 22, Edom is Esau, the twin brother of, of Jacob. 
and uh, the Edomites become the, uh, they're the closest racially, they're the closest to the Jewish people, but uh, there's, there's some wicked people, all right, idolaters and, and wicked people that were a thorn in, in Israel's side for years and years and years. And by the way, it went beyond the Old Testament as well. You cross into the New Testament after 40, 400 years of silence and you find that uh, there's a, one particular Edomite, uh, Herod the Great. Is, uh, is an Edomite, and he becomes uh, a Roman puppet and becomes uh, another thorn in the side of the, uh, of the Jewish people. But Jeremiah 49, along with Isaiah, two chapters of Isaiah, Ezekiel chapter 25 and 35, Amos, and the book of Obadiah. Okay, if you don't pay much attention to Obadiah, it's a small little book, one of the minor prophets, single chapter. It's all about the Edomites. All right, and we got to correlate that with either a Babylonian context or uh, an eschatological setting. Damascus, Kedar, slash Hazor, same two names for the same place and the same content, Kedar and Hazor. And notice all of these are in chapter 49. Notice this. So after we have the long chapter of Moab, in chapter 48 with verses 1 through 47, we have a long chapter with Moab. Then we have in chapter 49, we get boom, 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 much shorter messages with uh, uh, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, and Elam, all of those showing up in chapter 49. So mark your calendars for that week. That's going uh, to be a fun week racing uh, through all of those. And then it concludes with Babylon. Babylon gets two complete chapters, chapter 50 and chapter 51. And so uh, 46 verses in chapter 50 and 64 verses in chapter 51. Babylon is the city mentioned in the Bible more often than any other city uh, outside of Jerusalem. Okay? Jerusalem is God's city, is God's, the place where his throne dwells, the place where his people reside. But other than Jerusalem... The city in the Bible that's mentioned more than any other is the city that stands opposed to God and his plan and program, and that's Babylon. From the Tower of Babel in Genesis all the way to the, the Babylon of, of uh, religious Babylon and commercial Babylon of, of Revelation. Uh, so we'll deal with that in two complete chapters coming up, along with significant Isaiah stretches. All right. Quote from uh, Huey the author of the New American Commentary on Jeremiah and Lamentations. Since Jeremiah was called to be a prophet to the nations, he had messages for other nations. All of the prophets announced judgment against foreign nations with the exception of Hosea. The major oracles are found in, and these are the stretches, and you probably spotted some of those overlaps on the previous slide, but Isaiah 13 through 23 is a, is, a, is a huge section within Isaiah that centers on those other nations. Jeremiah 46 through 51, what we're introducing today. Ezekiel 25 through 32. And Amos. He might be minor, but he's included as well. Amos, uh, Amos was famous. And uh, chapters 1 and 2, uh, this prophet addressed the uh, nations in a way that Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel also did. In fact, the combined oracles in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, those combined oracles by themselves contain 25 chapters totaling 603 verses, more than many entire books of the Old Testament. So, I mean, just on a matter of scale, when you realize that the Lord has taken such time to delineate that, uh, it must be significant. It must be important. Obviously, it means something, or he wouldn't have had so many chapters dealing with it, and uh, and coming from the variety of sources that he chose to use uh, becomes important as well. So, um, sadly, I think when when you when Bible students, pastors, others, when you're slugging your way through a major prophet, it's like slugging your way through the Pentateuch. Uh, you get to a little stretch like the, the begat passages or something, and, and you feel tempted to just kind of skim, right? And kind of glaze over and, and get past it. And you feel like it's a time to breathe a little bit. And then you can get back to a real chapter, okay? Wrong attitude, okay? The begat passages are important, <laughs> and so are these. The Gentile passages are important because it's not only Israel that has a destiny, not only Israel that has a land grant, uh, the Gentiles as well have a destiny and land grants. And so those things, uh, I think, are also important. All right, for today, though, 
Uh, there's an early message and a late message. And when we break down chapter 46, uh, in verses 2 through 12, it's an early message. And then in verses 13 through uh, 28, 6, it's uh, a late message directed towards Israel. And then the final two verses is uh, a personal encouragement to Jacob. And uh, two personal uh, verses there that, that uh, break it down for him. So we start with an early message concerning Egypt, and it's addressing Pharaoh Necho's campaign to come to the aid of Assyria against Babylon. And we're very familiar with this because we've had this this uh, episode again and again and again. This is the famous fourth year in the uh, of the year of King Jehoiakim, and the events that uh, that brought the death of King Josiah and the and the beginning of the end for Judah, from Jehoiakim to Jehoiachin to Zedekiah and uh, in the captivity. So we read it here in verse 2, to Egypt concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the Euphrates River at Carchemish, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. And this fourth year, boy, it's a year they keep talking about. Okay, It comes up again and again and again and again. And it's mentioned in Jeremiah and Kings and Chronicles and Daniel it's a significant year in uh, in Old Testament history. Uh, so obviously it's a flashback coming at the end of the book of, of Jeremiah. This chapter and all these chapters, they come in a variety of times and then they get recorded and they get uh, filed away at the back of the book uh, such as we're reading it here. All right. Line up the shield and buckler. Draw near for the battle. Harness the horses, mount the steeds, take your stand with helmets on, polish the spears, put on the scale armor. I tried to read that with some excitement. All right. The, 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 the Hebrew here is very staccato. It's very point by point by point. It's like uh, an eagerness. It's like a marching band marching to a beat. Um, and, and, and so on a very militant basis, there's excitement about this battle. This is going to go well until you get to the next verse, <laughs> all right? But it, it builds the excitement. Like this is, the, this is, uh, this is the, the rise of Egypt. Egypt's been a little thin lately, but now there's a pharaoh, there's an army, and they've got allies, and they're marching forth. They are sending forces to the Euphrates, a distance. It's been a while since any pharaoh has tried to get Egypt to stretch that far out, all right? And so all of the thrill and all the excitement of this battle. And, and you remember, this is happening because Assyria is collapsing. This is happening because the Babylonians are uprising and, and uh, they're trying to overthrow the Assyrians. And Egypt says, this is it. This is our chance. All right. We're going we're gonna to go to the Euphrates River. We're going to back up Assyria. We're going to be their allies. We're going to crush this Babylonian resistance. And then, uh, you know, then we'll be the big dog on the block because uh, Assyria is going to own us or they're going to they're gonna owe us for what we're doing here. Well, it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, we know from history, Carchemish is one of the, the pivotal battles of all human history. All right. And it shows the, the dominance of Nebuchadnezzar, the dominance of, of the, uh, the Babylonian Empire. So all that excitement in verses 3 and 4. Then verse 5, why have I seen it? They are terrified. They're drawing back. Their mighty men are defeated. They have taken refuge in flight without facing back. Terror is on every side, declares the Lord. Let not the swift man flee, nor the mighty man escape. In the north beside the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers whose waters surge about? And so they thought... Their tactic was just overwhelming flood, overwhelming force. It didn't work. Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And he has said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. Well, it doesn't happen. Let me finish the rest of this. Verses 9 through 12. Go up, you horses, and drive madly, you chariots that the mighty men may march forward, Ethiopia and Put, that handle the shield, and the Lydians that handle and bend the bow. See, it's an alliance that Egypt's leading with a lot of subject tribute peoples. 
For that day belongs to the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes. And the sword will devour and be satiated and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord God of hosts in the land of the north by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and obtain balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain have you multiplied remedies. There is no healing for you. The nations have heard of your shame and the earth is full of your cry of distress. For one warrior has stumbled over another and both of them have fallen down together. All right, so there it is. This is the Lord's description of the mighty battle of Carchemish. Uh, that uh, I think clearly is better than anything a secular historian is going to come up with, you know, related to that. Although Herodotus tried. <laughs> all right. Um, this episode goes all the way back to Jeremiah's early ministry and the death of Judah's last good king. You remember, um, and we can turn there if, if we had more time, the... the um, the attempt, I think it's worth looking at one of these. One, um, As Nico was moving forth, uh, good King Josiah tried to stop him. And, uh, and he should have known better. And there's no indication that he ever inquired of the Lord. And there's no, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how an otherwise good king or an otherwise good president or otherwise good husband, uh, years later, does some of the dumbest stuff in the world and, and he should have known better. And yet he doesn't, or he he goes that way anyway, and uh, and he faces the consequences. And then who gets hurt? The king gets hurt, the nation gets hurt, the pastor gets hurt, the church gets hurt, the husband gets hurt, the wife gets hurt. The, the, the consequences then of spiritual leadership falling short have damage that are done to those who should be uh, shepherded. So um, you can read about this in Second Kings 23, Verses 25 through 30. I'm going to skip that for this morning, though. I'm going to go to Second Chronicles 35, which is a parallel record, but I think it gives more of the spiritual dynamic. Second Chronicles 35, verses 20 through 25. And um, there's so much in this. Verse 20. After all this... When Josiah, after all this, I mean, we've got a chapter here talking about the great things Josiah had done. Okay, they, they refound the law, they reinstituted Sabbath observance, they cleared out idols, they did. The reforms in jo- Josiah's day were great. It just was not going to save his nation. All right. Um, so after all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to engage him. But Nico sent messengers to him. And this is extraordinary because I don't think he's saved. I think he's a pagan, unbeliever. But God is speaking through Nico. If he's saved, I don't know how he got saved, but maybe he is. Um, Nico sent messengers to him saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Now, who does he know about God? How does Nico know about Elohim? Stop for your own sake from interfering with Elohim. I think it's Elohim there. With God who is with me so that he will not destroy you. Now, I find this remarkable in this whole conversation. It's not Josiah that's talking about God. <laughs> it's Nico talking about God. You know, I'm reminded of, of other events. You know, when Abraham thought there was surely there's no fear of God in this place. So he got afraid. He started lying about his wife, saying she's my sister. Well, there was more fear of God in the place than, than Abraham had. Okay? Something similar here, I think. So he's given a warning. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him. Yeah, that always works. Okay? Nor did he listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. That's not my opinion. The Holy Spirit inspired that in the text. God was speaking through Pharaoh Nico. But he came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. So many battles that happened at Armageddon. Um, The archers shot King Josiah. Well, so much for your disguise. (laughs) You only thought you were in disguise. And the king said to his servants, take me away for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot, carried him in the second chariot, which he had. Always good to bring a spare. 
and uh, brought him to Jerusalem where he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah and the prophet Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers speak about Josiah and their lamentations to this day. To this day. What day is this? The day that the chronicler is writing all this. All right? Years later, after the captivity. Uh, Now, the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion are written in the law of the Lord, and his acts from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And then what you're going to notice in the first part then of chapter 36 is the Egyptian involvement in putting Jehoiakim on the throne and the other uh, things that happen there. And so this is an early message that goes back to that to that episode. And I think the big picture we want to get out of this, what's the big takeaway of this early message? Human explanations for the outcome of battles fail to account for the sovereignty of God in the execution of his purpose from Alpha to Omega. And I love this. I love this verse. I love the fact, as we read it already, Jeremiah 46.10, so we we have description of horses and armor and bucklers and chariots and whatever, but the battle is the Lord's, right? Jesus Christ controls history. It is his purpose that's achieved. And so the Babylonians win Carchemish, Carchemish um, not because they were better, not because they were stronger, not because they brought more troops, because God determined it. And God has a program he's about to launch. It's going to go Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, Jesus Christ on his throne. Okay? And there's a, there's a program coming up, and this is the rise of Babylon. And the rise of Babylon had been prophesied by Isaiah 150 years prior. God's not about to change it now. Egypt can't win this battle, no matter what they do. And so I think the sovereignty of God is, uh, is uh, useful. Uh, the, the hand of God in history, how he works in providence, how he works in the outcome of, of battles, why certain things go a certain way and you can't understand them, but they do, see? And you get all these historians and they want to, they you know, write, and, and there's a dozen of them out there or more, right? 10 battles that change the world, 15 battles that change the world, 52 battles that change the world. I think they're trying to outdo one another when they write these, they write these things, okay? But Marathon, uh, Thermopylae, uh, you know, all of these battles, uh, Gettysburg, okay? Um, any of these things. And, and had they gone the other direction, the Battle of the Bulge, what if it had gone the other way, or other battles, okay? Um, why didn't Midway go that way? It shouldn't, but it did, you know? Um, and in, in a lot of cases, you look at these things and you say, militarily, let's not do that again. <laughs> I mean, it worked out, We're glad, but we wouldn't want to employ those tactics again in the same place, in the same way, it, as, you know, nine times out of ten, that battle's not going to go that way with those tactics and those circumstances. So how does that happen? Because the hand of Jesus Christ controls history. And it's a beautiful thing to consider. And we see it here. That day belongs to the Lord God of hosts. This is the day that the Lord has made, right? He has crafted it. He has designed it. It's going to accomplish his good pleasure. It is his vengeance. He's the one that executes vengeance so as to avenge himself on his foes. That's something he does not delegate. We're not allowed to take vengeance for ourselves. We can't handle it. We don't have the capacity to handle it. Every time we try, it's just carnality and ugliness. Okay? Vengeance is God's. He will repay. So his hand is in this. Um, By the way, there is a lengthy section of Deuteronomy that I think goes well here. Deuteronomy 32 grab that real quickly deuteronomy 32 because this uh, should not come as a shock to jeremiah or anybody of his day and age moses had spoken of this way back when he was getting ready to die and he sings a song deuteronomy 32 and uh, it's a very long chapter but let me just zero in here on 34 to 43 and uh All the details in here. Verse 34, Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed in my treasuries? 
Vengeance is mine and retribution. But keep in mind, he doesn't inflict it immediately. He keeps things in store. Things are saved up. He's the God that does not desire wrath. He desires repentance. And if uh, if repentance is achieved, then wrath is not necessary. Vengeance is not poured out. But in due time, their foot will slip, for in the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. And uh, the, the number one target for his vengeance is the jealousy that he has in protecting the Jewish people. And so uh, the Lord will vindicate his people. He will have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining bond or free, he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge? And so he's, gonna, uh, uh, he's going to ultimately destroy the idolatry that uh, his children were involved in and their enemies were involved in. Anyway, um, verse 39, or see, verse 38, uh, let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. No, God's your hiding place. Verse 39, see now that I am he, that I, I am he. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded. It is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. So when the storehouse is then open and he steps forward to apply vengeance, nothing's going to stop him. Who's going to turn his hand? Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on justice, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. (laughs) He is so slow to anger, but when he draws that sword, it is sharp and he means business. That sword has some drinking to do. It's going to be drinking blood. It's going to be satiated. We have times, there's, there's verses where the people are begging, you know, put the sword away, put the sword away. Yeah, can't you put that back in your sheath? All right, well. Anyway, there's more there and, and we'll let that go for now. I, some of this is just fun. The, the long hair leaders of the enemy. <laughs> and uh and so forth all right so mess with the jewish people and what are you doing okay foreign policy item number one on the agenda ought to be to bless the jewish people genesis 12 he will bless those who bless you the one who curses you he will curse there there's a lot of stupid things that that a gentile nation can do uh but item number one on the list is is cursing the jewish people that will put you under god's discipline quicker than anything else All right, that's the first half. The second message is a late message, and it concerns Egypt's Babylonian captivity. Do you know that? The Jews aren't the only people that went to captivity in Babylon. That the Egyptians likewise are going to have a captivity. There's going to be a 40-year captivity. All right, a 40-year captivity. But they'll be there, and then they'll be sent back. Their political leaders will be sent back. They're... uh, the issues that we see here in verses 13 through 26. And interestingly enough, when uh, when the Jews come back, they build another temple, and it's not quite the same. It's a diminished glory. It's smaller. There's no Shekinah. It's a diminished glory. Same thing. When Egypt comes back, it's diminished. Never again. They're out of the they're out of the build, and they don't build another pyramid. They don't build another sphinx. They don't build another obelisk. They don't. They're they're greatly diminished post Babylonian captivity, and very quickly they're going to be subject to the uh, Persians, the ones that let them come back. They're going to be subject to Alexander and the Greeks. They're going to be subject to the Romans, with uh, Caesar and Anthony. Um, they never again are going to have a purely Egyptian sovereignty through uh, the rest of Old Testament history. And so they're going to come back very diminished. So what we see here in verses 13 and following is a late message concerning Egypt's Babylonian captivity and restoration. So verse 13, this is the message which the Lord spoke to Jeremiah the prophet about the coming of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to smite the land of Egypt. Uh, and so it starts in verse 14, declare in Egypt and proclaim in Migdal, Proclaim also in Memphis and Tophanes, remember Tophanes, and say, take your stand and get yourself ready for the sword has devoured those around you. (laughs) All your buddies, all your alliances, all your friends, it's just you now. 
And the Lord says his sword is still hungry. Okay? Why have you your mighty ones become prostrate and uh, they do not stand because the Lord has thrust them down? They have repeatedly stumbled. Indeed, they have fallen one against another. Just like the battle of Carchemish, they're running into each other and tripping each other up and falling down. And they said, get up, let us go back to our own people and our own land, away from the sword of our oppressor. They cried there, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is but a big noise. (laughs) He has let the appointed time pass by. That verse right there, I'd love to tear it apart and spend weeks on uh, the political leader, the nothing but a big noise. Might be a curious application. Uh, And then he has let the appointed time pass by. Ah, his plan has an appointed time. Are we going to miss it? Are we on board with his plan and program? What is this appointed time? What is it that Pharaoh missed? And what could he have caught on to had he been listening? Had he had the ear to hear and the eye to see and the heart to understand? As I live, declares the king. It's the second time we've seen that. That as I live, isn't that something? God is eternal. He cannot die. So to use the phrase, as I live, is powerful. It's the language of an oath, the language of a vow, the language of, of, if I'm lying, kill me, right? Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. We turn these things into children's ditties on the playground. But when you invoke your very life, when you swear on your own life as to the truth of something, that means if you're proven a liar, They've got freedom to kill you. That's the consequence. You staked your life as the collateral on your, on your truth. And here's the God who cannot lie, who stakes the truth of his statement on his own life, which he cannot lose, his own eternal life. As I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Surely one shall come who looms up like Tabor among the mountains or like Carmel by the sea. If you're looking to the north, those are the tallest peaks you're going to look across. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar from the north, and he's the tallest king you've ever seen. He is, uh, he is going to be a king of kings and lord of lords by God's grace as God gives him that conquering in, uh, in this time. All right, so pack your bags. <laughs> Verse 19, make your baggage ready for exile, O daughter dwelling in Egypt. For Memphis will become a desolation. It will even be burned down and bereft of inhabitants. Egypt is a pretty heifer. But a horsefly is coming from the north. It is coming. I know, I've been waiting for weeks to preach that verse. (laughs) It's always fun to preach on the pretty heifer. It's more fun in Song of Solomon when some of those things kind of seem insulting to us, but they're, they're intended as compliments. Also, her mercenaries in her midst, like fattened, fattened calves, for even they too have turned back and have fled away together. They do not stand their ground, for the day of their calamity has come upon them at the time of their punishment. We better keep this in mind. Every nation has a conclusion. How many nations have promised eternities? All right. Does our nation have a promised eternity? Or does our nation have a conclusion? And when will that be? All right. Anyway, comes on down to verse 24. The daughter of Egypt has been put to shame, given over to the power of the people of the north. This is Babylon coming in. Egypt will endure their own 40-year captivity and then return to a lowly status. And uh, we can take this, we can relate it across to Ezekiel 29. Verses 8 through 16, while Jeremiah was preaching this in Egypt, Ezekiel was preaching it in in Babylon. And uh, far better than any kind of uh, satellite uplink or Fox News correspondence on the ground or any kind of thing there. God put his prophets in all these places, announced his truth, and there it happened. There it happened. But look, though, verse 25, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold... I'm going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh in Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, well, what's this about? 
Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. They get to come back. And even after Babylonian dominion, Persian dominion, Greek dominion, Roman dominion, all right, that's just the ancient world. Then on into the uh, New Testament times, on beyond the fall of Rome, on into the Islamic times, on into today. Egypt has a future. Egypt has a future. It's going to be a great revival in Egypt and a, and a highway from Egypt to Jerusalem so that pilgrims can come and worship. Despite all the Lord's judgments upon Egypt, there remains an eschatological destiny for them. They have an eschatological destiny. And if you were with us in the Isaiah series, you might remember this. because Before we did 52 chapters of Jeremiah, we did 66 chapters of Isaiah. Week by week, chapter by chapter, Sunday by Sunday. And um, I don't remember which Sunday it was, but back in Isaiah chapter 19, we talked about this. Isaiah 19. I could take a moment and pull up the website and find Isaiah 19 for you and tell you exactly the Sunday this happened, but it doesn't matter. You can get it and re-listen to the hour mp3s just sit there on the website minding their own mp3 business isaiah nineteen nineteen. and in look at this back up to verse 18 in that day five cities in the land of egypt will be speaking the language of canaan and swearing allegiance to the lord of hosts wow how's that going to happen okay one will be called the city of destruction In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Well, wait a minute. You see, in Old Testament times, the only altar to the Lord was in the Holy of Holies, was in the temple. But it was a Jewish altar, a Jewish temple. But you mean there's going to be an Egyptian altar, a Gentile altar, and it's going to be acceptable? It's going to be acceptable. An altar altar and a pillar to the Lord near its border. So the altar and the pillar... Clarence Larkin thought that was the, the Great Pyramid. Um, I think it's something else. I think it's something eschatological. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. That's kind of typical, isn't it? We want a hero. We want a savior. We want a champion. We want a political leader to make everything all better. Okay, well, that'll happen when Jesus returns. I wouldn't hold your breath before that, though. Okay? Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. (laughs) Lots of people make vows to the Lord. They're going to make a vow and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing So they will return to the Lord and he will respond to them and will heal them. Remember, the tribulation is God's wrath and justice to bring about repentance, the discipline upon the Jews and the discipline upon the Gentile nations and is designed to promote repentance. And it does. It works for Israel. They call upon the Lord and he's able to return at second advent. And it works for Egypt. Egypt will respond to the God of Israel and they'll be blessed for it. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrians, in other words, right through Israel from the south to the north. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. And guess what? Every time they're passing through to visit one another, what do they got to pass through? Jerusalem. They're passing through the Lord. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. So there'll be a trinity of worship centers, one Jewish in the middle and two Gentile. Interesting. I don't know if it works out as Ham in the south and Japheth in the north, but in any event, it is interesting to me. I don't take Assyria as Japhetic, though. Assyria is Semitic. All right, well, good theory. But this is what we have. Egypt has a future, all right? And there's studies to to pull all this out. There's studies to put these things together to see these things. 
All right, two more verses to go. So 2 through 12, early message. 13 through 26, later message. Not related to each other at all, but just collected and compiled and stuck here at the end of the book uh, in, in this way. But then now an application. An application to the Jewish people. But as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, nor be dismayed, O Israel. And both names are used in parallel, part of the poetry here. Jacob is the one that's renamed Israel, but to call him Jacob, Jacob gets repeated again and again and again in verse 27 and in verse 28. So once you get past the parallelism of Jacob and Israel, then it's Jacob, Jacob after that. So as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, do not be dismayed, O Israel, for see, I am going to save you from afar and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure with no one making him tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. Yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. Say, some people think that because he's slow to anger that they're getting away with something. <laughs> that not getting away with anything. Okay, it's going into a storehouse. And then when that storehouse is full and that door is open, look out. Okay, you will not be left unpunished. By no means will the guilty be left unpunished. God is slow to anger, but the anger is applied. Justice is always satisfied. So there's uh, the promise here. This is this is fun too. I would want to spend several weeks on these two verses if we had an opportunity for that. Because it's an encouragement to Jacob and it comes in the context of the Babylonian dominion. Their own Babylonian dominion, the Egyptian Babylonian dominion. And I think the setting on this is interesting to show the the the, the imagery from the Exodus that comes forth. Because it's, it's like another Exodus. Remember the first Exodus was out of Egypt? But now think about the global regathering from the four corners of the earth. Not just Babylon, but the whole global regathering that hasn't happened yet. The global regathering that will happen at at Jesus Christ's second advent. And that's going to be something. That's going to cause them to forget the Exodus. They're going to forget Egypt and Moses and the Red Sea. They're going to start talking about the, the Lord God of Israel that brought them back from the four corners of the earth. That's going to be their new testimony for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so I think it's interesting. And here, here's uh, the, Jacob being encouraged. Remember, the patriarch Jacob died in Egypt. Remember that? The patriarch Jacob took his sons down there. They survived the famine, but he didn't survive the trip. He died in Egypt. They took Joseph and the, they came out of Egypt. They buried his bones in, in Canaan, but he died in Egypt. And it, so it's interesting. And here comes a message in that very land. Here's a message that Jeremiah is delivering, a late message that he's delivering in this very land of Egypt. So the patriarch Jacob died in Egypt, but the children of Jacob, (laughs) they've got a future. They've got an eternal future. And this message coming from that land becomes quite remarkable. The global regathering of the Jews into their land is going to place them in the security of Jesus Christ's millennial kingdom. And God brings this about. Only God can bring this about. Uh, Netanyahu can't bring this about. Trump can't bring this about. The United Nations can't bring this about. They, uh, they've they been trying to bring peace to the, the Arab-Israeli conflict ever since, right? It's not going to happen. They, they think they're going to try to make it happen. In fact, the coming Antichrist will guarantee it, and won't he be a hero for everybody? But that will fall apart. Not till Jesus Christ comes will, will the, uh, the peace come about. So in verses 27 and 28, we have a reflection of what we've already studied back in chapter 23. Do you remember? You can take a look at this and then we'll reach the top of the hour and transition over to a communion mode. But you, you might recall back in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8, Remember the great shepherd that we saw in Jeremiah 23? 
Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. This is 23.5. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. It's not Netanyahu. It's not Trump. It's not any human political leader in the church age. It's Jesus Christ himself with victory at Armageddon, with victory to close out the tribulation. It's Jesus Christ himself that will sit on the throne of David and inaugurate the thousand-year millennial kingdom. Verses 7 and 8, pay attention. This is, I mentioned this a little bit ago. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. They're not going to say that anymore. How many times does that happen in the Old Testament? Again and again and again and again, Yahweh says, I am your God who brought you up out of bondage from the land of Egypt. <laughs> The birth of Israel as a nation is mentioned over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. That won't be the case in the millennium. They're no longer going to say that. But instead, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland, from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. The regathering of the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. That's not just an exodus from one country to the land. It's planet-wide. Every Jewish person on the planet, including, I think, quite a few that don't know they're Jewish. (laughs) They're going to be brought and they're going to be planted in the land. To me, it's it's a glorious thing. All right, well, what are we going to do? All right, that's the end of the uh, chapter. We need to close in prayer and then uh, transition to uh, communion. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your faithfulness, the truth of your word as it was given so long ago and yet still alive and powerful today. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding that we might appreciate each verse, each passage in its own context But then in our application, Father, what is expected of us? How do we adapt these principles and apply these doctrines, these promises? How do we make use of these in our daily life? So open our eyes to these, Father. uh, Cause us to embrace your plan and your program, Father. We are not ignorant. There was so much as given in the Old Testament that remained mystery, remained unfolded, remained unknown. They had no idea of the coming church. They had no idea of the bride of Christ. But here we are, Father, accountable for everything they were given, accountable for everything we are given. And most of all, Father, given your Holy Spirit that we might apprehend all this truth. So bless us, encourage us to to continue on, to continue on uh, digesting what you have supplied. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.